So I'm going to keep letting people in as they come in, but I wanted to say thank y'all. Welcome back. So good to see everybody. Um, we got a lot to talk about, a lot of good information. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Trinkle is, is here on, and he's going to tell us about a, a number of things. He's got about 15, 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, Jeff and his wife, Lauren, have become really good friends of, uh, of, of Gina and I. And um, he is a ear, nose, and throat doctor. He is doing, he's starting to get more into some of the personal injury work. We're going to talk about that because there's a couple things that all of us have dealt with that he's telling me about objective testing that I didn't know existed, which you're going to be great. But also, Jeff and Lauren um, have a very significant uh, COVID testing company, and he knows quite a bit about COVID, the testing. And so, Dr. Trinkle, tell us a, just a, a kind of a thumbnail about you, and then I want to ask you some questions about COVID, please. Great. Um, yeah, so thank you for having me. Uh, Mike, this is great. Um, as he said, uh, I'm a ear, nose, and throat physician um, and been in the Los Angeles area now for six years. We have um, six locations around LA. We do a lot of telemedicine as well and uh, very recently have been jumping into the personal injury space because as Mike told me uh, when we were meeting that there's pretty much no ENTs uh, available. And when we were talking about the different things that, um, that we assess, I couldn't believe um, you know, how, how many options there are. I mean, uh, at least from an accident standpoint, Mike, you may just kind of dive into this, right? Or we dive into that and then we'll talk about COVID in a minute. So yeah, um, go ahead. I was talking to, Je to Dr. Trickle about, we all have tinnitus cases, tinnitus. And he goes, no, it's tinnitus, you know, the ringing in the ears. And I'm like, the problem is it happens to a lot of our clients, but the defense says it's all subjective. Is there any way to objectively test for tinnitus? And what about hearing loss? It's all just a subjective. And Dr. Trinkle goes, no, it's not. Jeff? Yeah, we can. Um, it's very interesting. The We can definitely objectify tinnitus. We do what's called tinnitus matching. So our audiologists can essentially send signals back, you know, through, through the diagnostics. And the reason we do that is we actually use it for what are called tinnitus masking devices. So a lot of um, our patients that have debilitating tinnitus we program hearing aids to send a signal back in that, that kind of balances out their tinnitus. And that can help a lot of people um, if they're done right and programmed well. So on an assessment side, we can actually find where it's balancing. Um, and then on a treatment side, we can actually treat using hearing aids um, to, to help improve their, their, um, their symptoms long-term. Uh, hearing's the same way. You know, obviously it's very objective. Many times the trouble in a personal injury case is going to be whether or not they have any previous hearing tests to prove whether or not it was causative. But that being said, especially with uh, the frequency of the, the accidents being loud noise exposure based, there are ways that I can very easily tell people that, um, like for instance, when you have a longstanding hearing loss that's progressive from your uh, uh, age-related, you're going to have a certain pattern versus a, no a loud noise exposure, you're going to have a different pattern. And so while it might not be perfect proof, we can at least explain to a jury or to um, the other side that, that, that there's a pretty high likelihood it was due to the accident. And so when you have a test like that and you use a legal standard, which is more likely than not, <clears throat> which some lawyers say to a reasonable degree of medical probability, 
but other lawyers say to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, which is actually in the jury instructions, but they're all synonymous with each other. So I like to say more likely than not, because juries understand that more. But, uh, but Doc, what you're saying is for a hearing loss, whether it's a single event traumatic airbag or tinnitus airbag going off or a major blow to the head or some traumatic event versus, you know, they, why, they went to 90 Guns N' Roses concerts when they were younger, you can tell the difference and at least more likely than not have, in your opinion, a causative factor of a traumatic event. Is that right? Yeah, and it's not perfect. It's definitely not perfect. I don't want to make you guys all believe that, like I can prove it with without a shadow of a doubt. But there's definitely ways, especially using their subjective history, combining that with the event and the history of the event, and then combining that with the hearing loss pattern, um, that we can, at the very least, I can give the attorney advice on, hey, uh, yes or no, like I think I could prove this or I couldn't, for sure. And so the last thing on this tenant is for you all who have not had a lot of experience with it. I've had, if you practice in PI for any length of time, tinnitus is a frequent complaint from a number of clients that ringing in the ears to a certain degree. And it always is, well, we kind of poo poo it because there's no way to prove it other than they say they have this ringing in their ears. But now with these testing, if, if you can show it, I have had clients commit suicide because of tinnitus, because of ringing in their ears. It can get so bad that it literally drives your clients nuts and it should not be poo-pooed. It is a significant, potentially significant injury in a case. And you will have a certain number of jurors that have experienced themselves or their family members with tinnitus. And so now we have some objective testing. So I just wanted to put that out there because I have found that there's no real ENT PI savvy people out there. And so now you've got a Dr. Jeff Trinkle. So yeah, I'll, I'll um, take it one step further for you, Mike, when you're selecting your jury on tinnitus, anyone who's been in the military, I don't know if they're allowed to serve on juries, but or police force or any other agency like that, they are have a really high likelihood or anyone who has a job that has a loud noise exposure is going to have a crazy high likelihood of having tinnitus and they are going to be very, very, um, you know, compelled uh, to, to side with the plaintiff on that side of things. So. And that may be the only reason you put someone with a military background on your jury as player. <laughs> um, okay. So any questions on this? And then we're going to talk about COVID. I thought it was very interesting. So let's switch. So Jeff, um, tell us a little bit about your COVID uh, business and why we should rely on you to tell us about COVID vaccines and about the, the vaccine passport. Yeah, so at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, as a, in medic, you know, as I do elective surgeries, we obviously couldn't do anything and nobody was coming in. So uh, Lauren had, my wife had the great idea of uh, starting a COVID test company, thinking it was going to be like a three-week endeavor or one-month endeavor. And it's turned out to be an entire separate company uh, that we now do a lot of um, public testing for the community. So we run six LA County sites uh, for free testing in underserved areas. Uh, and then we also um, do a lot of private testing, getting businesses back to work, um, you know, helping them 
have make, make sure that employers feel safe coming or employees feel safe coming back to the office, uh, creating protocols, OSHA compliance, all of that kind of thing. Now we're pivoting into vaccines as well. Um, so we're working with California Department of Public Health to deliver vaccines, uh, both mobily to underserved areas right now, eventually to businesses uh, that want our help. Um, and then uh, we're working with LA Metro to put it into to more public areas to try and get more vaccines out there. So doc, as we all start to get vaccinated, can you tell us one, once we get vaccinated, what should we do? Should we have a photo of our vaccine card? Is there something coming like a passport? Are we gonna eventually probably need to prove whether we're vaccinated or not to get into sporting events or to get on a plane or get into another country or what's coming? Yeah, um, at the beginning, definitely keep your vaccine card. Uh, you know, once you're vaccinated, it's usually about two or three weeks after your second vaccine where um, you have full antibodies, so to speak. Uh, we would always recommend getting them checked after you've been vaccinated just to make sure it took because there's a small percentage of people that don't get antibodies after a vaccine. Um, so just to make sure that you don't have a false sense of security. Up front, uh, keeping your card, you know, we're working with multiple large venues, um, including like Bank of California Stadium, SAP Center up in San Jose to do testing for their um, their games. Most of the venues are trying to come up with some kind of venue va vaccine pass, uh, you know, whether that's an upload or checking at the gate. Um, and eventually I think that there will be, the problem is there will never be a single vaccine pass. You know, there's no way that the federal government or local government is gonna side with just one specific pass. But that being said, there's lots of different platforms becoming available, including ours. Um, we're, we've created a software for vaccine pass as well, as well that we use for businesses to help keep traffic for the business um, and help create a digital health pass to protect PHI, but also allow people to come safely back into work or to a venue. So when we all get vaccinated, we get a little card that has the date and whatever. Is it okay to just photograph that card or should we try to carry that card around with us? I think right now, if you took a photo of it, it would be sufficient for most people. But um, if you're if you're going to like an event that's going to require a vaccine card, they'll probably make you bring it to the card. But if for whatever reason you just needed proof of it, I think a photo is a nice way to store it. Um, like I said, eventually, hopefully there will be not really a centralized, but I'm sure Apple will come up with some way of storing it in your mobile wallet kind of thing uh, <laughs> for the just for the everyday person. And then the last question, and I'll open up for a couple of guys, you got to go, is when we get vaccinated, is that reported to some sort of central database that at some point when they get a passport format that it will be able to be verified in some way? Uh, the answer is yes, but it's not national, unfortunately. It's, it's local. So California has their own, um, and it's changed about four times um, with that statuses, but they, they are all accessible. So there is a database, um, and that's obviously for, the, you know, for, for them to keep a record of just like percentage of people that are vaccinated and also to keep track, make sure that people have had their first and their second dose so that they can you know, keep an eye on that. Um, the question of whether or not there will ever be a solo way to access it, I doubt it just because, you know, that's your personal health information. It's not anyone's business, but your own, whether you were vaccinated or you weren't. Um, and so the government will want, not just the government, but just health in general, people are not going to want that to be an accessible thing for a business. Like if a company like Apple say, want to say, hey, we want access to this so we can create a digital health pass for people. 
they're never going to allow Apple access to people's personal health information without some kind of consenting, you know. Got it. All right. I know you got to go. Any last questions about any of the stuff we've talked about? Um, Jeff, if you'll text me all your contact information, I'll put it in the chat here for people uh, to access over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Any questions? Great. All right, Dr. Trinkle, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I know you got to go. You got surgery in two minutes or something like that, right? <laughs> thanks for having me, Mike. Right. appreciate it. Take care, Jeff. Okay, any thoughts before we move on to the next topic? Pretty interesting, huh? But basically it shows that government is a shit show, basically, right? Like the LA fucking Superior Court is a shit show. And I'm sorry to, to segue into that, but um, I have, you know, we all love the LA Superior Court and hate it. We all love the judges and hate them. I mean, but... I'm going to trial in San Bernardino in two weeks, I'm going to trial in Ventura in three weeks, I'm going to trial in Orange County in a month and a half. And then the LA Superior Court comes down with these cockamamie rules that we're all trying to figure out. So if you haven't seen it, the uh, presiding judge, LA Superior Court, sent these very vague and unclear rules last week about trials. And they said, and everybody kick in if I'm not getting the full kicker. But what, what they said was there's a limited number of trial courts. I think they said, what was it, 10 or 12 in the county for personal injury or for, for civil trials. Then they said there's priority for criminal and other stuff. But if you come up for trial, we will not send you to trial unless in the last 90 days you have had a mediation or an MSC. And if you do have that, then you have to, to go out to trial, meet and confer, and talk about who is going to come remotely. And also, I think they said a discussion about whether you can stipulate to a bench trial rather than a jury trial. Okay. And um, whether other things remotely can be done to speed up the case. So instantly, every one of the trials that we had set over the next two months, if there was not a mediation in the last three months, we don't know what's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is you show up at the final status conference and they give you another trial date. And they said, well, you can request an MSC. So if any of you have ever been to a MSC in any court in the county or any court in the state, you understand that MSCs take all day and they yield no results. So I have a trial that's set in three weeks. We mediated twice, but it was more than 90 days ago. So what do we do? I got to mediate again. So I was actually speaking to a mediator who I said, are you guys getting busy? He goes, we're getting nuts. I said, you guys need to have a mediation that lasts 15 minutes so that we can hire you for 15 minutes. Say, yeah, you guys going to settle? No, I don't think so. Now we've satisfied our mediation requirement because otherwise um, I've had 
several defense lawyers who have been asking for trial continuances, which I said no. And they go, ha ha, we got to do an MSC and I'm not available for four months. And that's what we're getting. And so there's more to come, but we're trying to figure this out. But it is just a, it's a, it is a not a very good situation to get to trial. And the last thing is they're saying, well, stipulate to a bench trial, but we're in a hub. So who are we stipulating to? And do you have to stipulate to a bench trial before they send you out? And then now the 170.6 becomes critically important because now what if you get a terrible judge and you stipulated to a bench trial? And so there's a lot of these issues I just wanted to bring up. I want to have a brief discussion about it. If anybody's had any experience in the last week or so going down on an FSC, I'd love to hear what people say. And we got we got the um, defense lawyer here from The Ohio State University. Mark, if you got any advice too, let us know. Is there any skinny on what the defense lawyers are doing to further delay our trials? Yeah, I haven't heard anything. And trust me, I, I, I looked at my trial list today. I'm set 77 times between now and Christmas and 42 of those are LASC. So I got to get these off my, my, my docket. I'm usually set only about 50 times a year. Uh, and I've reached out to all my friends. No one has had any feedback yet because you and I had text messages earlier in the week where I said, what the fuck is this going to do to all of us? And I think it's going to be seriously get back in line. Now go back to the end of the line and we'll see you in a year. Because uh, I'll tell you, my firm, we're not going to stipulate the bench trial. We're not going to stipulate the less than 12 jurors. Uh, I like my odds with 12 and I'm sorry, but that's the way it's going to go. Uh, my only concern is other counties like Riverside and San Bernardino want to slam you into a Zoom jury trial, uh, which, short of an order, I'm not going to agree to that either. But right. I, I would love, you know, hey, I, I readily recognize firm trial days get cases settled. I got plenty of cases I'd love to get settled, and this this merry-go-round uh, that we're, we're on is not helping out. Just the inventory is just getting insane, and it's like playing Space Invaders, trying to knock them down, and they're all coming at you at the same time. So, um, Kelly, you did really good and really you had a great question. Then you said go blue, which is – wait, is that Michigan? Oh, that, okay, that's good. So, um, so Kelly said, what about the low-cost court-offered mediation panels? Are those still up and running? Can we use those to rubber stamp, which is a great idea. It's a great idea. Um, I have been around the court – superior court mediation process for – almost 30 years now, 25 years. I've been one of those low cost mediator and it's really difficult. I mean, the, the issue is you don't know until you get to the FSC, then they send you to an MSC or they say you want to do a, a mediation and it's a great idea. And if they have a whole bunch of people, you know what, that might be a good idea that we say to the court system, we'll all volunteer to be uh, low cost mediators to try to clear some of this docket. That's actually a pretty damn good idea. Will somebody write that and down? And in employment law, Mike, we used to be able to choose. We got a list of who were offered and we were able to select, I mean, this is when I was on the defense side, but we were able to stipulate plaintiffs and defense counsel together. Um, I think we got a list of three different names. And that's what I always used to do on the defense side when I didn't actually want to mediate the case. I would just you know, hire cool. these low cost guys. That's a great idea. I'm going to send an email to the to Stuart Zanville at Cala and the uh, 
whoever our current president is, as a past president, I should know that. And I'll, I'll tell them that we all would like to volunteer to be free court-appointed mediators. And I can do a mediation in about four minutes. Y'all ain't going to settle. Get out. All right. And, but if that satisfies what we need, then we're good. Um, Charles, did you post the, uh, the LA Superior Court rules? Yes, I did. There's a link to it, so it's there. So it's a link to the notice. And I had a mediation on Monday. Uh, 50% of the mediator's pressure on the plaintiff's side was the fact that we wouldn't get a trial. I mean, yeah. That's what he was using. He kept coming back saying, well, you're not going to go to trial for at least another year, so you want to take this money or wait. And um, so, Mark, you also mentioned that we want to know about stipulating if we can agree to a jury of less than 12. So just real quick, the rules. MSC or mediation held in the last 90 days. If there's not been, then Department 1 will arrange for an MSC of any available judge or you can go to a mediator. Two, whether you will agree to a jury of fewer than 12. Remember, civil is nine out of 12, which is two thirds. So if you stipulate to 10, then it's gotta be two thirds of 10, which is about six and a half votes. So you gotta stip whether you're six or you're seven to, to get a verdict whether the parties agreed to a bench trial on some or all issues and whether any witnesses can testify remotely. So it remains to be seen how this comes up, but um, that's it. I got a case in Ventura that's coming up, preference case. The main courthouse in Ventura apparently has one courtroom that they're using for civil for, for trials. And it's one of those two big ones so that they can spread everybody out and criminal takes priority. And so I'm going to show up next month, uh, next week, reporting ready for trial in a week. And they told me they're basically going to trail me for unlimited amounts of time. And, but that's better than not having a trial date. Any questions on all of this stuff? If y'all want to come to Louisiana with me and try some cases there, we are getting out there. Come on. Nothing? We're wide open. Come on. What? We're almost wide open. Yeah. So one, one. And there's been two huge verdicts in Baton Rouge, like $29 million and a $19 million verdict in the last three weeks in Baton Rouge on, on, on PI cases. Hey, Mike, this is Dal. Um, how are you coordinating witnesses, experts, all this? Like, are you – getting them set for the date on the FSC and jury? Are you doing all that then or? It's been a constant conundrum forever. And so depending on who your experts are um, and how flexible they are and how much money they make from medical legal work, the more flexible they will be. But they, the, the doctors want a date certain. And some doctors want to be paid for a date certain. Let's say you're starting trial on Monday. Let's say a, a month from now or two weeks from now, you're supposed to start on Monday. Well, you don't know if you're going to start at all or on Monday or on Wednesday or you're going to trail, etc. So if you got a doctor who says two weeks before, I need you to pay me for the Thursday of that week, which I'll block out. You have no idea if you're even going to be in trial, much less if you have, they fit into your witness schedule. And so I have always said the hardest part of trial 
is witness scheduling. It is by far the most difficult part of trial for reasons like what you're saying, Dal. And so you just got to be cognizant and they got to understand that COVID has thrown it even more in flux. And if they can't be flexible, then you're just not going to be able to use them anymore or they're going to, but you know, when you got treating doctors that are going to be your doctors at trial, they're legit. They're like, Hey, I got a blackout time. And I'm like, I can't give you more than 48 hours heads up. And they're like, well, I can't do it then. And so I've started to take all of my treaters uh, on video to play them at trial. And I got to say, and Mark, you tell me if if you're experiencing this as defense, it's not necessarily a terrible thing to have your treater on video as opposed to live. No, I mean, and if the defense is not going to drag that person in, you know what plays are coming into the game. You know how to defense against it. There's no surprises. I, I, if I can play a videotape depot, I love it. You get you get 27 minutes where you can relax in trial. You know exactly what's going to come in. And I just took a treating doctor for that Ventura trial that I'm going to play at uh, the San Bernardino trial. The defense wasn't ready to cross them. I did my entire direct and – they're like, oh, okay, let me get your opinions. And they didn't cross them at all, and I'm going to play it at trial, and it's really great. And the other thing is I've said in, in jury trials when I've played treating doctors, I'm like, you know, these are real doctors. They're, like, too busy. They can't – they're doing whatever. So they were nice enough to, to let us take their video, and it, I think it adds a little bit of credibility. So I'm doing that as often as I can with a treater. I, I notice the depot. I take it for the purposes of playing it at trial. The law says that um, if the defense wants, they can take a depot for discovery purposes before you take your depot that you plan to play at trial so that they can prepare their cross-examination after you do your direct in your depot. I have never had a defense lawyer ever do that in my career, ever. But legally, under uh, CCP 2025, they have the ability to do that. Okay? Any questions on that? I hate to be a downer, but, you know, the facts are the facts. We ain't cheating ourselves, and we got to deal with this process. So that's what it is. Quick question. Mike, uh, what's the law on um, experts when they charge uh, five times more than hourly rate when you're videotaping them? It used to be that that you could get away with saying, hell no. But now the defense started doing it and they would charge, you know, $1,400 an hour for a depot. But if you videotaped it, it'd be $2,500 an hour. And I made a couple of motions and got it, got it cut down. But then the, the, the plaintiff's experts all joined the bandwagon. And so now they're doing the same damn thing. So basically it just upped the price of admission by like 40% for everybody, right? Because everything that we ask of the defense, if your experts are doing the same damn thing, that's why when you're cross-examining a defense expert, um, you may prove that, you know, he or she made $2 million a year doing medical legal work. But if your expert made $4 million a year, you better watch the hell out, Right. So it's just a, it's a, it's now a price of business, right? Which is why 998s are so important. 
because all of those expenses are recoverable expenses if you beat your 998. And if you don't, then those expert costs are not recoverable. Anything else? Thank you. All right, we take a breath. And I want to switch gears. We got a killer lemon lawyer, Michelle up here. I don't know if everybody can see her at the top, but she and I become friends. I, you and Gina are, are really good friends. And I thought, and, and she was just going to come on and, and be a part of it. And I said, you know what? I don't know anything about lemon law. And then I said, well, if I don't know anything about lemon law, there's probably one or two people else who don't know anything about lemon law. And, um, would you mind spending a few minutes talking about lemon law? And would you mind? No problem at all. I'd love to. So I was telling her that I know in my practice, and I'm sure in y'all's, people come up and they're like, I need an immigration lawyer. I got, I need a criminal lawyer. I need a family lawyer. I need a lemon lawyer. I need a worker's comp lawyer. Well, we got that handled now, right? And we just added of counsel, uh, Cynthia Santiago is uh, immigration, our of counsel. So I got that handled. But if you got a lemon law case and you don't know what the hell that means, other than you won't buy a lemon at, at Toyota of Orange, <laughs> um, Michelle, tell us about lemon law. What is it and what are the damages that can be uh, uh, accompanied and do you pay referral fees if we refer you a case, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So hi, guys. My name is Michelle Fonseca Kamana. I am the principal attorney at West Coast Lemons. So Lemon Law is really a breach of warranty type of case. So if you don't have a warranty, you're not going to have a lemon. And the two types of warranties that we see the most in these types of cases are the manufacturer's warranty. So those three-year, 36,000-mile, five-year, 60,000-mile warranties and the dealership warranties with used cars. If you have issues during that extended warranty period where you're paying money out of pocket for that extended warranty, that's not going to help you at all. I have my own personal you know, opinions on extended warranties, but you're going to want to focus on that manufacturers and the dealership warranty for these cases. And there's three main ways to qualify for these cases. The first one's the breach of the implied warranty. So for new cars, it's usually that first year of ownership. So if you have a lot of issues that really just aren't normal um, for new cars, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing over and over again. But if you're taking your car in, you know, five, six times because things keep breaking down, you can qualify under that provision. The second way to qualify is a breach of the express warranty. So this is the lemon law that most of us think of when we think of, you know, lemon law. It's the multiple repair attempts for the same or similar issue. So if you keep taking your car in for, you know, a hesitation on acceleration or braking issues or, you know, your infotainment system isn't working properly and they can't fix it after a reasonable number of repair opportunities, that's when you can qualify under this provision as well. And then the third way you, can, you, you see in these lemon law cases is this infamous 30-day rule. So if you've ever Googled lemon law, this has probably popped up and I get a lot of prospective clients saying, it's been 30 days, you know, I, I qualify, right? And you can, but there's a caveat here. So there's a defense built into the law for circumstances outside of the manufacturer's control. And with COVID, we're seeing that a lot with all of the manufacturing and shipping delays, you know, we're seeing a lot 
longer repair times here. So you can still qualify based on that 30 day rule, but I would recommend just to be safe to make sure your lemon law cases qualify under the 30 day rule and either and implied warranty or breach of express warranty, just to make sure you don't get defensed on that 30 day rule. So what does a good case look like? There's a presumption in the Lemon Law that says that if you take it in four times for the same issue within the first 18 months or 18,000 miles, you automatically meet a criteria that's basically the most important criteria in a Lemon Law case, the reasonable number of repair opportunities. You know, you get to check that box. There's also a way to qualify if it's a significant safety defect. So if it's something that could kill you or cause serious bodily injury, such as if your car is just losing power on the freeway, we get those a lot. You only need to take it in two times because the law doesn't want you to keep putting yourself in danger too long. So those are two main guidelines. And there's also the 30 day rule as well. But it's not an end-all be-all. So that presumption is really a guideline. And what I see a lot of Lemon Law attorneys do is they kind of hang on to those numbers and think those are the magic numbers. And that's not the case. It's really finding a balance between the number of repair visits and the number of days out of service. If you can find a good mix there, that's when you're going to have a solid Lemon Law case. And what kind of damages are available in a Lemon Law case? So you're entitled to either a repurchase or a replacement. So a repurchase entitles you to your down payment, all the payments that you've made and your loan payoff. There's some statutory deductions for the mileage offset. So trouble-free miles that's calculated based off of the first repair visit, the mileage at the first repair visit, um, and any aftermarket additions. So if you decided to add everything under the sun to your financing, like that gap insurance, extended warranties, theft deterrence, that's not reimbursable to you, um, but you can cancel it and get a prorated refund. And that's a way to get some money back there. But the big way to make money on these cases is the civil penalty. So that entitles you to two times your actual damages if you can prove a willful violation. So the setup on these cases is key. And, you know, a lot of the, the attorneys I'm going up against, they know I'm setting these up for trial um, with these civil penalties. And so two times damages. So let's say you, you get your, your, the value of your car back and let's say that's 50 grand. You're saying you can get up to another $125,000. Yeah. Yeah. And attorney's fees and costs paid all by the manufacturer. There's that one way fee shifting provision. So that was my next question. So it's beneficial to the client because the other side is paying the attorney's fee, right? Absolutely. And then do you pay referral fees? How do people get cases to you? I do. So I pay referral fees 20% and that includes the attorney's fees. And I also take a portion of that civil penalty as well. So I pay 20% of basically everything that my, my law firm makes on these cases. So if somebody's in our clients complaining about their car being broken all the time, we can call you or, and, and you can tell us whether it seems like a good case or not. Absolutely. Yeah. I give free consultations. So I'd be happy to talk to your clients directly, or if you want to shoot me an email or give me a call, I'd be happy to talk through the facts and see what we can do. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Any questions, guys? Yeah. Can I ask Michelle something, Mike? Yeah. Hey, Michelle. So I saw your Instagram post that you had this great result, I think maybe a year ago with a huge um, civil penalty. I think it was a truck and you said it was like very close to um, 
your heart because it was one of your oldest cases. Um, my question is, how, how did you kind of pull, pull that one off? I, I dabbed in a little bit of lemon law and uh, I have my own little ways of trying to get them for the, you know, civil penalty. Like I'll include a drop uh, Dropbox link in the notice letter and Dropbox lets you know if they open it or not. So then I'll just basically tell the defense counsel they didn't even open the video evidence. So like they didn't even look at it. They just denied it. Um, but I just want to kind of hear about that if you can share. Yeah. So I don't waste my time with a lot of pre-lit stuff on my end. So I actually coach my clients to do that whole pre-lit demand themselves. So I send them a buyback script that has exactly what I need them to tell the manufacturer. And then I have them take notes regarding those conversations and who they're talking to. So that way we've got our side of the story well documented. And then you always get in discovery, you know, their side of the story and what they decided to, to put in the CRM and stuff like that. So it's the best thing for the consumer because if you, you get the yes, um, pre-lit directly from, you know, consumer to manufacturer, that's the fastest way for the consumer to get their car bought back. And I'm honestly, I'm more in it to help the consumers than to make a buck. Um, and you know, with those cases, I get a lot of good reviews and referrals. So, you know, it does work out in the end, but if they say no, you know, you've got this solid paper trail that can prove your willful violation. It's not just, you know, this up in the air, oh, they should have bought it back. You know, there's the case law that says that they should affirmatively request to buy it back or affirmatively tell the consumer we're going to buy it back. But that doesn't happen very often. So if you've got that good paper trail, and then with a lot of defense attorneys, I've been doing this for a while, we've got our system that, you know, I send out discovery, and then I'll send them a little packet, you know, with my <laughs> little preview of what I'll, I'll say at trial, um, and the, the key documents, and then they, they take it to their clients. And I'm usually able to get results relatively quickly. Um, because of those relationships and because of that setup on the front end. And last quick question. I know Mike is uh, generous enough to let uh, lawyers jump on with them if they're referring them a case. They're usually in the background just hanging out in the depot room while he does all the magic. Um, do, do, do you do the same? Like, would, would, you, would you be open to it? Like, if there's a good case that you jump on and let the other lawyer be like a Robin to your Batman? Potentially. I mean, it, it depends on the case. A lot of my cases, honestly, like I got a call from a defense attorney the other day apologizing because he was going to have to send me discovery. He wasn't able to get the case resolved, you know, that quickly. So, you know, if it is a case that's being litigated, I love it. You know, I wish I got to go to trial more, but, you know, these manufacturers are offering, you know, the moon and the stars and, and the, it's the best thing for the client. You know, they want to just get in. <laughs> a safe, reliable car again. And, and I understand that. Thank you. And Moss, at our Halloween party this year, I can be Batman if you dress up like Robin. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> uh, I'll do it. I'll be a fat Batman. Robin, but I'll be a Robin. I could not like this. Um, last thing, there was a, my mentor, Mike Pews, before he became an extraordinary traveler, sold cars. And he said the number one profit maker for a car dealership was those extended warranties that nobody ever uses and nothing ever covers and they charge millions and don't qualify for any kind of living law, right? So I've always thought about that when they're like, put you in that room with the finance person and they go through. And by the way, you know, have you guys ever signed the documents on the desk when you bought a car? Have you seen that? So the now when you go into certain dealerships, the desk is an actual computer screen that has the documents in the desk 
that you can sign on the desk and they can spin the documents. And I read something, the guy's a billionaire. He created it and he leases it to car dealerships around the world. He doesn't sell the technology, he leases it. And it's well known that something like they sell 13% more of these bullshit extended warranties and whatever when they use the desk. Isn't that weird? Anyway. It almost worked for me, too. I was at Westbrook Jeep, and I'm like, well, it's on a desk. I may as well. I'm like, wait, stop. What the hell's going on? Um, all right, Michelle, thank you. That was really helpful. So um, this is kind of law and life, and I, I really appreciate everybody coming on. I wanted to, to raise a couple of things that have come up in, in my practice um, that I think – you know, apply to everybody. So uh, real quick, a couple quick hits. I had somebody the other day go, well, is my policy open? The policy is 100 and we demanded 80 and they didn't pay it. So should I now demand the 100? And I wanted to just say, let's go back real quick about what a policy demand and how you open a policy. All that matters <clears throat> is that if you give an insurance company an opportunity to pay their policy limits or less and get the, the, all of the claimants under that policy off the hook and you give an insurance company a reasonable opportunity to have the information they need to do that and they say no, then the policy is then they've committed bad faith against their insured. So if you have a $100,000 policy, as long as your demand is within that policy, it allows the company to pay that money and get their client off the hook. That's all you need, okay? So I see people, well, I've got a X amount of policy. Should I go back and, and it is not, you have to demand the policy limit or the policy number. It's anything within the policy, okay? And again, just as an aside, and we can talk about this separately as well, just because you open a policy, in other words, just because you gave an insurance company a reasonable opportunity to pay their limits or pay within their limits, and they say no, the cause of action against them belongs to their insured, right? So, the long way around is you go to trial, you get a bazillion dollar verdict. You can execute against the insured. And usually that insured will say, well, why don't you sue my insurance company for me? And I'll assign you my rights of bad faith against my carrier because the plaintiff and a third party carrier don't have a covenant together. So just because you have made a demand within policy that has not been paid, if the defendant is the type of person or in a situation where they'll never refer you their bad faith rights, you haven't opened the policy of a, for, that helps you, right? For example, if the person dies, you got to get an assignment from the estate rep. Well, many to that estate rep may be out of the country, maybe, I mean, out of the state. It may be some long lost relative. They may not have any money in the estate. If the person who hit you is a drunk driver, 
and is in prison, you may never get a hold of them. They may not give a crap if they got a judgment against them. The, the, the horror story that I had was tried a case about four years ago, 750 policy. I came involved. They had not offered any money. I demanded the 750, took a depot, came in. They said no, tried the case, got an $11 million verdict in um, San Diego. They paid the 750 and said, call me when you get the assignment. And it was a Mexican trucking company and they disappeared in the wind. So my client has a $10.25 million judgment that they can execute against. But I didn't have a defendant that could assign me the bad faith rights. So I just say that again, because I, I know I've talked about it a couple of times, but it is a, you know, oh, I have a 15 policy and they opened it and I got a billion dollar case and I'm going to make billions. And I'm like, well, who's the defendant? Are they going to be able to assign you that? Big thing that comes up, these goddamn Hertz Avis policies that are in, right? So, and you got a, uh, I just had a case where the guy came from China, rented a Hertz, has a million dollar policy. We open the policy. It's a billion dollar case. And I got to go find this guy in China to assign me those rights. That's a tough case. So I see that a lot in these rental car cases where you got people that are from other countries that come in. So it's another thing that, so I'm probably going to settle that case, but why would Hertz if they got a million dollar policy and they're never going to get hit for a million bucks, ever pay a million bucks? They're going to probably pay 850 or 900 grand. It's kind of like in MedMal. Why do MedMal, you say, oh, there's a 250 case. Yeah, it's probably worth 190. That's what they'll pay. Why would they pay more than, why would they pay you 250? They make you go to trial. They're only going to be on the hook for 250 So, all right, questions on that. I didn't mean to digress so much, but it is a very, very common thing that I see all over and over and over. Mike, uh, this is Dell. Yeah. You know in trial how you can set up the high-low before verdict? Can you get an assignment from the defendant prior to the verdict as yeah. another? You can, and I did that. Uh, two years ago, which resulted in a million and a half policy and they paid $21 million on it because I got an assignment. But I had a sophisticated defendant who was an out-of-state landlord who had a personal counsel who knew what was going on. The problem is pre-trial, pre-verdict discussions, how you talk to the defendant? Because the insurance hired defense lawyer will never relay that information. We can say till we're blue in the face, you got to hire a cubist counsel and have that counsel call me. I've never had that happen. But if they got money, the defendant has money and they hire an outside counsel, then that lawyer calls you. And then that's how we did the, the assignment. So Mark, real quick, if we send a letter hypothetically to a hypothetical defense lawyer, and we say, the policy is now open and you've exposed your insured. Please hire Cumis Council and put them in touch with us. Are, are they required to give that information to the client? Well, before it even gets to that, Mike, I communicate every single demand to my client and the carrier. Uh, I do a lot of legal malpractice defense. That's a great way to get sued. Uh, you know, there's a tripartite relationship, but I better tell my insured that there's demand within his limits so that he or his personal counsel can tell me. But if I do then get that letter, if it's escalated to that, I forward it on. Absolutely. 
you don't want to be the defense attorney getting sued in a malpractice case and getting that letter shoved up your ass in deposition. It's embarrassing. And I've had to defend those depositions. Well, you are a good, great lawyer and, and you're ethical. I have said that I've found that doesn't always happen that way. Doesn't always happen that way. Um, any questions on this? Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. It's good. It's good to have you on here, man. Bouncing <laughs> all these ideas off of you. I, I, and it's good that Charles got a video camera. You finally see what you look like, bro. All right. Um, last issue I want to talk about because we talked about a lot, a lot about law, is just kind of bring everybody. We haven't seen each other in a little while, um, and I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about life. Uh, Bear with me for a minute um, and tell you about some experiences that I think are helpful. Certainly they were helpful to me and maybe they'll be helpful to you guys. Maybe some of y'all on occasion have felt like this. Maybe on occasion. I know no one has problems. And contrary to my Instagram page, I am not a happy son of a bitch all the time. And so um, two days ago, I was feeling like crap. Mr. Motivation didn't have any motivation. I was like, what do you feel like doing today? I'm like, I discovered that old sitcom community on Netflix. It's funny as hell. And I just want to watch that at three in the afternoon. But I feel bad about doing that. <sighs> but I don't want to get up. And that chocolate ice cream is looking damn good. And have any of y'all ever felt that way? I pulled myself out of it. Took a little while, but let me tell you how I did. Routine. Routine. And I talk about routines a lot. And they're really important, I believe, for those moments when you don't feel like doing shit, right? Right after all the talk, y'all are all fired up. Everybody's ready to do shit, right? We go to that Vegas convention. The next week after Vegas, we're like ready to take over the world. But what happens three weeks later or a month later or when your kid's been yelling at you for fucking four days, right? Routine. And by that, I mean, um, we all do stuff and uh, we expend mental energy to do it. Right? We have, remember, willpower and mental energy is a renewable resource, but it's like your phone battery. It's like your cell phone. Over the day, it, it goes down. And that's why breathing and meditation or going out to pet the goats or whatever, it kind of builds back throughout the day. But most of us don't do that. And that's why you're more likely to eat that ice cream at the end of the day because you're exhausted because your mental willpower is down. And so what routines and habits do is they allow you to do the things that you want to do but because it becomes routine and a habit, you don't have to expend as much mental energy to do it, right? So when you drive the first time to the Long Beach courthouse, you're like, and you're exhausted. But the 50th time you go to the Long Beach courthouse, you don't even remember how you, you're just there and you didn't expend any energy. And that's what routines do. Whether you're working, working out, cleaning the house, whatever it is. And so for me, um, I had written down a routine for working. I hadn't worked out in a couple of days and I opened my routine 
And what routines are about is if you start the first step of your routine, it's very easy to do the rest. And what it did for me, it was it regulated me. And once I did that, I kind of got back, got my mojo back a little bit. And so remember, it takes about two months on average, some less, some more, depending on the, the um, you know, how complicated the habit is. But good or bad habits take about two months of regular activity, regular routine. And so, again, I've recommended that if you want to accomplish something, whatever it is, you want to work out, you want to uh, read, you want to whatever it is, take one thing. And think about the steps that you do when you do that thing that lead up to you starting that routine. So if you can think about, well, let's say when I work, I turn on my computer, I go get my coffee, I spread stuff out on my desk, I do whatever, whatever it is, think about what, when you are in your zone on what you want, what have you done to set that up? I put on a different outfit, I get out of my pajamas, I take a shower, I, whatever it is, and write it down. And when you feel like crap, and you don't feel like doing it, open that up and do the first step. I guarantee you, it is light years more likely that you do it. And I had that routine written down on working out that got me off of the couch watching community eating ice cream. And I did that first step and it got me regulated. And so I, and once you do that for a month and a half to two months, good or bad, it becomes much more of a habit and it takes less brain power to do the same thing. And you are exponentially more likely to do it over and over and over. And it can talk about childcare. It can talk about spending time with your loved ones. It can talk about, you can do it for anything. So I guess what I'm saying is whatever, just do it for one thing. Think about something that you, you know, that we all say I should do. I really should do. I really want to do. I really, you know, I should read more. I should eat better. I should work out. I should spend more time with my kids. I should spend more time with my spouse. I should Get outside and enjoy the sun more. Whatever it is, can't cheat yourself. Be honest with yourself. And then say, what are the big steps that I do when I do that that make me more likely to do it? And then write it down and try to do it a couple of times this week. Because once it becomes a routine, it will be easier for you to do the things that whatever is important to us that we want to do over and over. Have any of y'all ever felt that way? I think we have, right? And I use the word happy, by the way. I stopped using that. I'm about contentment because I have spent a lot of time in my life figuring out what makes me content because I know that happiness is just an emotion and I can be content and very unhappy. I can be content and very happy. And so I use the word happy, but that's just an emotion. And your emotions change quickly when you go into your routines. 
And those emotions, when you're doing stuff that you like, get triggered by doing stuff that you like. And so you will find when you have routines that you stick to, they trigger the halo effect. Shit, I'm happier when I'm doing something. Oh, Mike, you're going to be an automatron. You're going to be what? Get a life, right? And so enjoy life, then live decisively. Any last second thoughts on that? I, again, I don't mean to preach at all. Look, y'all don't have to listen to a damn thing I'm saying. I just have done it wrong a lot. And when I do it, what I think is right, I'm like, shit, I should tell people about this because this feels good. Anything? All right. Well, another successful Alder Talk Live. Guys, it was great to see everybody. Um, it's starting to get beautiful. The doors on my Jeep are coming off this weekend. So uh, enjoy the weekend, everybody. It's great to see y'all. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. Be safe. Bye. Have a good one. All right. Take care.